Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. In today's episode, we discuss Chapter 8 of the Quenta Silmarillion, of the Darkening of Valinor, in an episode we refer to as the one in which we talk about Ungoliant. So, um, it looks like the general consensus is that everybody wants to talk about Ungoliant first. Uh, so let's, let's start there. So the first general question is, um, what is she? Who is she? Um, and, uh, well, Dave doesn't want to hear that she's a Maiar. But, uh, it's a little hard to give any other answer here. She's clearly one of the Ainur, um, Though I will uh, try to solace Dave with um, some uh, 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 some extra stuff uh, after I give the boring answer to begin with. What we're told about her, just to sort of review this on page 73, this is the beginning of chapter 8 here, we're told that although that the Eldar knew not whence she came, but some have said that in the ages long before, she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwe, and that in the beginning she was one of those that he corrupted to his service, but she had disowned her master, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. So she's clearly... An Ainu. She came from outside of Arda and descended into it. Um, she is, you know, she was corrupted by Melkor, so she's clearly one of the Ainu who, att who attuned her song to Melkor's uh, during the Discord and the Great Music. Um, she is, therefore, sort of like Sauron or like the Balrogs, but the interesting thing is that uh, her disloyalty to Melkor, that is the fact that she disowned him and set up on her own, sort of seemed to suggest that she's actually worse than the Balrogs and Sauron. Um, we talked a while back about how with Sauron, his loyalty to Morgoth is actually uh, sort of the one good thing about him, or the one semi-good thing, or the one less evil thing about him. Um, and uh, she doesn't even seem to have that going for her. So, um, you know, Maiar, it seems, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and, and that is, she's an Ainu, she's not one of the Valar. Um, you know, are there other distinguishing subcategories? I've talked before about how, you know, when we talk about the people of these, um, of the Valar, uh, and, you know, and how certainly in his original conception, he actually conceived of some of the categories that are used in other fairy traditions, like brownies and, uh, and sylphs and whatnot, uh, as being sort of subgroups of those, uh, of those peoples associated with the Valar. But, you know, the way that Christopher has put the Silmarillion together and with sort of Tolkien's later writings, you know, we're in the Silmarillion as it's published, we're given, you know, two groups. We're given the Valar, who are, you know, these few groups, and then the Maiar, which is pretty much everybody else. All of the other Ainu, all the other Ainur who descended uh, into Arda. Um, you know, that's sort of the system we're given there in the Silmarillion. So, you know, for the sake of our discussion, it kind of seems like that's sort of what, uh, what she more or less has to be. Dave, what were you going to say? I was just, what interests me most about her is, is, is her sort of ability to, um, to, she seems to have the ability to unmake things. Um, I, I remember sort of later in the chapter, there's a part where um, uh, I think it's Yavanna and some of the, the Valar are sort of, when they figure out that, oh, Melkor made off with the um, uh, with the Silmarils and uh, that Ungoliant hadn't managed to consume them, there's sort of this moment of relief that, well, like, well, it's not too good that he has them, but at least they weren't completely destroyed. Right. And I think that's that's very interesting. She, her nature, so, okay, fine, she's a Maiar, I give in, I give in. <laughs> <laughs> but she seems to have a very sort of special role or special power of this sort of you know, I I know I know what I know 
what a lot of people notice about her is her greed and her loss. And but I think there's something more interesting that that she seems it's not just greed and lust to consume, but to just completely destroy, unmake, vanish things from. She's sort of sort of anti-creative. Um, the nature of her evil seems different from both Melkor and Sauron and a lot of the other evil people who seek to dominate creation. She pretty much seeks to just completely destroy it. Um, yes. And I think that's very. I, I think there's something interesting going on there. I think it's different from the other m- most of the other evil creatures. It is. I think. I think it is in a sense. I don't think in the end it's completely different. In that, uh, that is one thing I would say here. She seeks to destroy things, but they're not just annihilated. She weaves them into her webs of darkness, which have substance. You know, she makes this unlight business. Uh, you know that that her webs are. So actually, she is a maker. She is a spinner. Um, even her characterization as a spider is interesting because, of course, the you know the the, the web spinning is the number one thing associated with her you know as spider and um you know and spiders are therefore i mean you know all the way back through the myth of arachne you know spiders are associated with art and artistry so um and now it's not that she's ever spoken of in you know explicitly sub-creative or artistic terms there's nothing beautiful about what she does there's nothing she is not a maker in a sort of a positive sense, but in a purely derivative sense, she is. She takes light and she makes it into unlight. And even the light from the trees uh, and the light from the gems that she consumes, um, there is, you know, she still she still makes it into something. I mean, the thing, one of the things that I find really fascinating about her is the, the whole unlight business. I mean, you know, one of the things, one of the illustrations that I often use to talk about evil in Tolkien, which, as I've said before, you know, he, his depiction of evil seems to me to be very much in line with the traditional sort of medieval and Augustinian view of evil, that there is no such thing as positive evil. Evil is just, uh, is, is just an absence. It is a negation. It is a corruption of good. And all that is, all things that we call evil are just good things, which are, which are, you know, sort of warped and twisted and put to, put to wrong purposes or done inordinately. And, um, but see the and and the illustration almost always uses light and darkness, right? That you know, light exists, but darkness is not a positive thing. You know, you can't shine darkness around. It's just the place where light is not, and that's like the relationship between good and evil. Except with Ungoliant, with Ungoliant, there is a light which can there is a darkness which can be felt. You know, there is a there there is this 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 positive unlight. Um, but that, I think, is not so much a contradiction of the overall system as sort of an illustration of sort of this special thing that she is doing. It's still completely derivative. It's still a, it's still a total warping of a good thing um, that is taking that light and turning it into unlight. She couldn't make it on her own. She couldn't make it without light. Um, but uh, but but that I find a really a really fascinating thing. Um, Chris, you wanted to contribute to this too? Yeah. Can can you hear me? Yep. Okay. I didn't do a mic check before. And right. uh, one thing is, I read this and got to th- <laughs> read this and got to thinking about Ungoliant. All of the other Maiar, or whether they're good or evil, we get a sense of what they were like in their in their origin. Like Sauron was one of Aule's people, and etc. Um, I cannot in any way come up with any idea what Ungoliant might have been before she was corrupted. And uh, just wanted to throw that out there to see if anybody had any thoughts. Obviously, we don't get any really any real clues. But uh, um, for me, it just kind of comes up blank what possibly function she could have served originally. I apologize for the squeaking sound. My my puppy is going crazy. 
that's right. That that's perfectly fine. Um, that's a great question. I mean, the the first thing that I would suggest in response to that myself would be the light thing. The only indication that we get is her relationship with light. Um, so, I mean, it makes me wonder: was she, um, you know, was she associated? Was she associated with light? We know that Varda is associated with light, and I think it's interesting um, that Ungoliant is female, as Varda is female too. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, was she like Varda? We know that uh, Melkor tried to corrupt Varda originally and failed. Um, so that's, uh, to, to me, that's sort of all I see kind of to go on there. Now that, I mean, that's as good as anything. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm being mugged by my dog again. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to kill my mic. <laughs> you guys can continue to, he's only weighs 10 pounds, but he's got the best of me. <laughs> and Chris lapses into silence as we can only imagine now what his dog must be doing to him in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to make an observation that um, Tolkien seems to make a distinction between evil, um, evil that's due to Melkor's fall, like Ungoliant being um, corrupted, and um, just like bad things that would happen, like being attacked by wolves or wild animals or... Um, even I was thinking about the uh, old man, uh, old man Willow, um, uh, in the old forest. Those seem to be more just um, nature, just like the the, the eve or the dangerous side of nature, as opposed to Ungoliant, who is um, the personification of greed. I guess you would call it, or the spiderification of greed. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I mean, it's true. Greed is the, you know, the, uh, the thing that is really associated with her, this sort of desire and lust. Um, you know, I was actually just talking about the word lust uh, uh, in class on Monday with my uh, uh, with my fairy class because we were reading the beginning of The Wife of Bath's Tale and her description of the lusty bachelor. Um, lust in uh, the word lust just mean, meant desire generally. Uh, lust could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. It was to depend on what you were desiring and how much. Um, so, you know, we have narrowed the meaning of that word so that it only means not only sexual desire, but, you know, unwholesome sexual desire. Um, but it used to have a much broader sense. So when we're talking about the lust of Ungoliant, we just mean the desire, you know, her, 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 her desire for things. Her desire is very strong and it is very selfish. In fact, um, you know, selfishness is even, I would say, sort of even, even, I think even more than greed is the word that I would use to describe it. She wants to draw all things into herself. And this is where I come back to Dave's point about the difference between her evil, the expression of her evil, and Melkor's. She doesn't want to dominate all people. In fact, she doesn't want to dominate like he does, but you could almost say it's worse than he does. I mean, she wants to dominate them completely. That is, she wants to just make them a part of herself. He wants to be a master of other wills. He, want, he wants other wills to submit themselves to him um, so that he is their master. She wants to assimilate them into her own person. Um, and that, I think, is, is a, you know, could be seen, I think, as a, as a kind of domination that's like the most extreme possible kind of domination um but yeah. she doesn't really want to torture people the way melkor and sauron like to do though she just wants to eat them yeah yeah um yeah no i mean i i yeah yeah so that seems a little less worse to me i mean would you rather meet up with 
Ungoliant, Sir uh, Melkor. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's a that's a uh, that's a really tough question. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it reminds me of a of a, uh, a a moral quandary I am currently in. Just earlier today, I was Facebook friended by Melkor. Like seriously, somebody named Melkor uh, friended me, and I still don't know whether I should accept this or not. Uh, I, I'm really kind of up in the air. Seems like a bad you idea. You should definitely accept. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to okay. see what happens. <laughs> that sounds risky to me, but we'll see. Anyway, Dave, what were you wanting to say? I, I want to um, uh, I want to disagree with my with my esteemed colleague Laura. Um, I think I agree with you. I think Ungoliant uh, is worse. Um, you know, yeah, it's it's horrible that uh, Melkor and Sauron want to enslave me and all that, but at least I'm. To some degree, at least I'm still myself. I'm not being eaten and turned into unlight. I, I think I, I see now how she fits into the larger picture of evil. Evil being largely a, a um, driven by um, the desire to dominate. Um, uh, she's not unmaking things, but what she is 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 taking away their sort of their natural being and replacing it with this unlight stuff. She's consuming uh, other parts of creation and turning it into um, um, something. You know, something entirely different from what they originally were so uh, I, I think that that's what I think that's what's always struck me about her she's doing something quite different from Melkor and I see now it's sort of it's compatible with what he's doing but she he is sort of transforming or destroying their or she is sort of destroying their being in a way right oh, I see Laura's jumping in <laughs> yeah I just wanted to bring up the example of the elves that uh, Melkor captured and and corrupted into orcs so that's that's a pretty evil thing to do too. Uh, now there's a there's a close parallel. Yeah, as far as just taking and, and sort of consuming them. I mean, they have been consumed in a really horrible kind of way. Yeah. So maybe they're maybe Melkor and Ungoliant aren't so different. Maybe they they have some common ground. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the way that I've always kind of thought about this, that is especially the comparison between the two of them, is it seems to me that Ungoliant is kind of, because she's a more minor character in the books than Melkor, in part, she's a sort of a pure illustration. I mean, in my mind, that's one of the, you know, and I talked about this, I talked about it in this sense in my Tolkien class. To me, Ungoliant is like the paradigm of the evil creature. Um you know, Melkor is evil, Sauron is evil, they illustrate this perfectly well. Feanor illustrates it very interestingly too. But I feel like if you want, you know, an in a nutshell version of what the nature of evil is in Tolkien and and then the process of evil and the ultimate destiny of evil Ungoliant is like a compressed case study of the nature of evil. Think even of some of the parallels um, back to the Discord and stuff. Remember, one of the things that was noteworthy about Melkor's music when he was making the Discord is that although he was vying with, with Iluvatar and his goal was to give more glory to his own part and he wanted to, he, you know, his own part wasn't cool and special enough. He wanted to make it cooler and more special. But what he ended up doing was just making it louder and and, and brasher and more, it's just like, you know, tr a bunch of trumpets, clang uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, blaring on one note, right? It was, a, it, it, it achieved only a clamorous unison. We see this is the same thing that Ungoliant does. She, she doesn't unmake things, um, as Dave was just saying, but she, she takes these things into herself and just 
spits them out as unlight. And, you know, Dave, the thing that you said about, like, not wanting to be chewed up by ongoing and, and like, made into unlight. Well, because, yeah, everything is, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. Creature, uh, you know, the gems of Feanor, the trees of Valinor, all of these great and wondrous things, which are not only great and luminous and beautiful, but also distinct and unique and, uh, and, and you know, individual are all, you know, and so instead of all joining together into this rich and harmonious world uh, that Iluvatar has created and that the Valar and the elves are shaping um, through their own sub-creative genius, Ungoling's going to take all of it and just spit it all back out as this, like, homogenous unlight. And again, that seems to me like, yeah, well, there's, there's like, the Discord of Melkor at work again. Or rather, there's another illustration that you could put alongside of the Discord of Melkor to show... You know what is the nature of evil? What does nature do? And what is the what are the fruits of evil compared to the fruits of good? Um, so for me, this is how I kind of handle the comparison between the two of them. I think that they both are you know they're they're definite similarities, and we can see distinctions. Um, but to me, she is the like the clearer, purer, because simpler illustration of uh, of of this evil. Mike, you've been you've been patiently waiting over there. Hi. Uh, my reactions to Ungoliant were sort of three. One was um, she represented to me sort of the the Vishnu, the destroyer character, but with none of the redeeming characteristics. Like you know, in other traditions, there's this all-consuming destroyer who rips things apart, but then unleashes like creative energy. And so, what's disturbing to me is to read this character that is consuming, uh, but then there's nothing. There's no positive byproduct of it. So that was my first reaction. My, my second reaction was, we touched on this. It's, she represents, uh, to me, the sort of more primordial fear of, uh, just being consumed by something. Just, and there was a passage a couple of chapters back about the elves being afraid of something in the dark that was going to eat them. Yeah. And for me, at least, this character also kind of touches on that. There are different types of, of evil and we respond to evil in different ways. And for me, she represents this, this more basic primordial evil. And so those are some of my reactions to the character. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's interesting, you know, to use this bit, you know, this word sort of basic and primordial. Um, a passage I want to read, uh, and uh, in here, uh, Dave, this is my, uh, this is my, 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 my recompense for the boring answer of, yeah, she's a Maiar uh, that I gave before. And that is, this is from uh, the Book of Lost Tales, uh, the first appearance of Ungoliant ever. And there are some, um, there are some major similarities between Ungoliant, as we come to know her in the Silmarillion, um, and the character as she's first, um, as she's first described uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. But there's some really interesting elements there that I, that I thought I'd share because I think they're pretty cool. Um, so let's see, uh, I'll, I'll just read a bit here. So this is Melkor going down. So therefore he seeks until he finds a dark cavern in the hills, and webs of darkness lie about, so that the black air might be felt heavy and choking about one's face and hands. Very deep and winding were those ways, having a subterranean outlet on the sea, as the ancient books say. And here on a time were the moon and sun, were the moon and sun imprisoned afterwards. Different story. For here dwelt the primeval spirit Moru. So here you go. The, there you go, Mike. She's a primeval spirit. The primeval spirit Moru, M-O-R-U. 
whom even the valar know not whence or when she came and the folk of earth have given her many names mayhap she was bred of mists and darkness on the confines of the shadowy seas in that utter dark that came between the overthrow of the lamps and the kindling of the trees but more like she has always been and she it is who loveth still to dwell in that black place taking the guise of an unlovely spider spinning a clinging gossamer of gloom that catches in its mesh stars and moons and all bright things that sail the airs indeed it was because of her labours that so little of that overflowing light of the two trees flowed ever into the world for she sucked light greedily and it fed her but she brought forth only that darkness that is a denial of all light ungwe lianti the great spider who enmeshes did the eldar call her naming her also wirilome or gloom weaver whence still do the noldoli speak of her as ungoliant the spider or as guerlum the black i love the name wirilome gloom weaver uh that's pretty cool um so so yeah so there you go dave she is not necessarily my heart in the original conception but what she is is unknown nobody knows the valar don't even know where she came from uh and you know tolkien suggests that perhaps she always was um so that's interesting you know i i don't know exactly what to do with that we see he doesn't stay there you know tolkien changes his conception as time goes forward uh, and we can see we can see sort of the derivative of it right where in the first version in the book of lost tales version we get even the valar don't know um yeah whom even the valar know not uh, whence or when she came in the silmarillion version we get the eldar knew not whence she came but some have said in ages long before so um so anyway i mean i think it's uh i think it's you know we have to recognize that she's you know she is with that with the discussion of her coming in uh and with uh, her in being corrupted by melkor she's clearly amaya uh, she's clearly amaya in the silmarillion version but but in the original conception there was also that more which is kind of interesting laura yeah it it, it seems interesting it seems almost like at first he conceived of her being evil on her own instead of the result of the fall of Melkor, which would really change the um, the whole uh, mythology uh, that he's built up. So um, I, I th- it seemed like he was sort of moving towards uh, more things um, being the result of a fall, more in the, the Christian style of uh, the fall of uh, Luther or something like that. Yeah. Or Lucifer, yeah. sorry, not yeah. Luther. <laughs> Oops, a little Whoops. Freudian moment there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, because one of the things that I remember he was working on towards the end of his life was that the the short lifespan of uh, the mortals was due to a fall of some type that he never yes. really specified. Yes, no, I I, I agree. Um, to me, the thing that is absolutely most striking about that passage from the Book of Lost Tales is exactly, Laura, as you say, the lack of an idea of a fall. Um, the idea that she could be A, evil, and B, there from all time is very different. Very, very different from uh, the conception that we get throughout the Silmarillion. And that is pretty consistent along the way. But I will say that also is more consistent with his initial... It is more consistent with his initial conception of the mythology, in which all of them were even more flawed than we see them in the Silmarillion. That is, all the Valar are more flawed. We see them screwing up and doing many more stupid things uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Stupid things, I say with respect. And, um, uh, And... 
also there are some more like random evil valar like there are there are these gods of war whom have just been cut um who were already kind of morally corrupt they're not on melkor's side officially they're with the other valar and valinor but um but they uh they were um you know violent and bloody minded um all the way through so yeah yeah i mean his his uh his his conception was um, was different, I think, at first. And over time, he made it more, I think he made it more internally consistent, more consistent with the conception of the music of the Ainur, which was always there and which he started with. Um, and I think that what he has now, this sense of the fall, which is started there in the music of the Ainur, I think it all works together a lot better. Um, Jason, go ahead. Thinking that this passage you just read where she's described as a primeval spirit, that actually is reminiscent of a lot of um, pagan mythologies where you have the gods coming in and imposing order and creating the world, but then there, there may be these pockets of chaos or spirits that have been around, hanging around from before that somehow they, they run into later on and have to deal with in some way. And it sounds like maybe Tolkien was working from that sort of schema early on rather than the more consistent, you know, creator deity that in, in the mold of the Luvatar that that actually does create everything and and doesn't leave anything outside of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, that that certainly does seem to be one of the main directions in which we can see the mythology evolving um, over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely um, definitely does have that different spirit. I think at the beginning, which is interesting, but um, but. Good. Dusty, what were you thinking? Other than Ungoliant and maybe Tom Bombadil, are there any other neutral or like non-aligned Maiar that are out there? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by neutral. Um, you know, when you bring up neutral, one of the first things that I think of is the comment that Treebeard makes, right? When the hobbits ask him whose side he's on, and he's like, side? I'm not on anybody's side, because nobody is exactly on my side. Um... And so at first it sounds like he's saying, oh, I'm neutral. You know, I'm to totally neutral in the whole, like, Sauron, you know, whole good versus evil thing, the whole Sauron versus the West thing, like, whatever. But, of course, it turns out he's not, in fact, neutral in that. Um, he is clearly on the side of the free peoples um, and supports them and is, you know, as, as he himself goes on to explain immediately after, there are some things whose side he is entirely not on, uh, namely the orcs. So... I think that we have to consider that concept of neutrality in a couple different ways. If we're conceiving neutrality in the sense only of uh, something like direct political affiliation, certainly Tom Bombadil is a free agent in that sense. That is, he is his own master, he's got his own little bailiwick there, and he stays in it and he does his thing. Um, you know, and he's, he's not taking orders from anybody. He's not, you know, in, in, you know, any kind of allegiance with anybody else. He goes his own way. Now here I'm quoting Treebeard again. Treebeard does the same. He goes his own way. He's got his own realm. He does his own thing. But I think both of them, that is both, um, both Treebeard and uh, Tom Bombadil, and of course, I think you could just then throw Ungoliant in uh, in the same camp. She also is a free agent in the sense that you know she doesn't accept the uh, the the you know political affiliation with Melkor, and yet there's no question which. Um, there's no question which uh, 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 side she's on as far as like, you know, who she's actually like. Uh, and if it came to it, who, you know, who are her friends and who are not her friends. Um, 
Well, no, see, not friends is not right because, like, no, she doesn't have any friends. Um, but like, is she evil? Yeah, yeah, she's evil. Is Treebeard good? Yes, yes. Is, is Tom Bombadil good? Yes, yes, he's good. I mean, there's no, there's no question about that. We can certainly see that, for instance, with Tom Bombadil um, when he faces the Barrow, the Barrow White. I mean, Tom Bombadil versus Barrow White is light versus shadow, you know, and that's why the Barrow White takes off immediately um, when Tom Bombadil and the light come bursting into the tomb. So. So again, I think that, uh, um, I do think that we need to be sort of precise in the way that we use language there. Again, yes, neutral, sort of politically, people who set up shop on their own. But um, I don't, I can't think of anybody who has sort of a neutral moral state, because I don't think there really is one. Um, and I, in the music, either your, your music is attuned to Iluvatar's will, or it's not, and you're part of the Discord. Like, there's no, doesn't seem to be any real um, middle ground. Um, so I, I guess that's, you know, so yeah, so it sort of depends on how we, um, how we think about that. Um, we've had a couple, we've been talking about Angolian for a long time now, uh, but we've had a, a couple of uh, sort of style-related questions, um, which I figure, hey, it's time for style moment again, right? We should have style time. Um, a couple of you have wanted to look at or to read passages. Um, uh, let's see. Somebody earlier talked about, uh, I know, about Jordan reading or Brandon, who was going to read? Somebody wanted to read a couple passages? I know, uh, Matt, you sent uh, around by Facebook a couple passages before, right? Uh, I had promised to read if that's okay. Sure. All right, here we go. Um, so it's two short uh, parts from first from page 73 the second from page 76 but she had disowned her master desiring to be mistress of her own lust taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness and she fled to the south escaping the assaults of the valar and the hunters of arome for their vigilance had ever been to the north and south was long unheeded Thence she had crept towards the light of the blessed realm, for she hungered for light and hated it. In a ravine she lived, and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountain. There she sucked up all light that she could find, and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom, until no light more could come to her abode, and she was famished. Then the unlight of Ungoliant rose up even to the roots of the trees, and Melkor sprang from the mound, and with his black spear he smote each tree to its core, wounded them deep, and their sap poured forth as it were their blood, and was spilled upon the ground. But Ungoliant sucked it up, and going then from tree to tree, she set her black beak to their wound, till they were drained, and the poison of death that was in her went into the tissues and withered them, root, branch, and leaf, and they died. And still she thirsted, and going to the wells of Varda, she drank them dry. But Ungoliant belched forth black vapors as she drank, and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that Melkor was afraid. Awesome. You know, one of my favorite stylistic techniques that Tolkien does, and he does it on several occasions, is where he has that, he has, you know, like a long sentence, and then he ends it with a new, with a, that, a, a sort of a, a final simple clause like her like his and she was famished at the end of that at the end of that first paragraph there um just like how he you know when he describes the fell beast in the battle of pelinor field and he ends the long flowery description with and it stank <laughs> i just i love that uh the way he sort of punctuates that um it is a really nifty way. I mean, it's one of the ways in which I think it is so good. I'm really glad that uh, that 
that you read that for us, Jordan. It's really good to hear because I think it's one of the things about the Silmarillion and its style. I think it really, it works so well in audio performance because uh, so much of it is rhythm. Um, and he, you know, notice how he does the same thing in the description of, with the trees, right? Um, you know, and the poison of death that was in her went into their tissues and withered them, root, branch, and leaf, and they died, right? Uh, you know, we get these clear, like, moments, okay, you know, breathe now. Here is the end of this moment. Um, and that uh, that that really emphatic, you don't see, this is why like in medieval manuscripts, you don't get punctuation. You don't need punctuation if you're, if you're, if you're writing properly, you know, if, if you're, if you're hearing it and if your readers can hear it, uh, and uh, it works really well. What else do other people notice? Um, uh, just sort of, sort of stylistically about those moments or other things that jumped out at you there? Matt, go ahead. Oh, yes. I, I was just going to say, I was just, uh, just so impressed by his command of imagery and uh, and just in general, the style tone. Maybe it's because, because I'm getting used to reading um, the material now, but it just seems to me that the last um, three or four chapters of narrative structure is really picking up, and it's it just makes for exciting reading. And, uh, you know, I savor rereading the chapters. I savor hearing them read aloud and uh i just uh, i'm just enjoying the language yeah no i agree and uh it does really build a kind of momentum and i think the more you get into it and the more you get used to it um uh the uh the the more powerful it is and it is one of the things i think that makes the silmarillion so rereadable um is you know that 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 strangeness of style which is such an obstacle at first to so many readers uh become become something which is such an essential part of the beauty later on and it is so it's it's so elegant and so strange to our normal speech um that it makes it really easy to sort of savor again and again um yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, go ahead. I mean, uh, uh, that scene of the of the attack on the trees is is terrific. And a couple of things that I noticed around that central scene was, uh, in terms of Tolkien describing the sounds before and after the attack, he describes the Teleri uh, singing upon the shores before the attack, and then after the attack, at the attack, he describes that the only sound. Uh, was the sound of them wailing like the cry of gulls. And so I just love the book ending of either side of the attack, the Teleri singing and then basically crying in the darkness. But my, my all-time favorite style moment of, of before the attack takes place when Melkor and Ungoliant are on the top of a mountain looking down. And Tolkien, I think, gives us our first cinematic picture of the whole land looking down. And he gives it to us just before it's all going to be destroyed. And if this was a, a movie, you could completely see the slow pan over the whole creation. And he describes the whole creation in this paragraph. Yeah. And you get one look from the, I was, I, I, in my margin, I just wrote, this is the God's eye view of this whole creation. And it's all about to be lost. And the fact that he gives that to you finally, what does, what does this look like from on top of the mountain? Uh, and he, he gives that to you, and then this attack comes. And so I love that style moment, too. Yeah, no, I agree. That is really, that is really wonderful. Um, 
Yes, the woods of Arame and westward shimmered the fields and pastures of Yavanna, gold beneath the tall wheat of the gods. But Melkor looked north and saw afar the shining plain and the silver domes of Valmar, gleaming in the mingling of the lights of Telperion and Narolin. Then Melkor laughed aloud. So good, so good. Um, one, uh, one thing I would uh, I'd point out, one actually, one thing, Jordan, as you were reading, one thing that I noticed, uh, that I think I noticed a while ago, but I hadn't thought about for a long time, um, when, uh, when we're just, when we're talking about Ungoliant's relationship with light, see here we are going back to Ungoliant again, um, for she hungered for light and hated it. Does that sound like anybody we know? He desires and hates it. Got it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Both Brandon and Elizabeth, <laughs> but Gollum, it's exactly like Gollum. It's like Gollum's relationship with the ring. Um, and this again, now coming back, Chris, to your question earlier, you know, who was Ungoliant originally or what might she have been like originally? That parallel is itself kind of interesting then, isn't it? Uh, to think about her relationship with light uh, as being uh, kind of parallel. To, no, Jordan, I'm not suggesting she was a hobbit originally. But but that, uh, anyway, we can see that that sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the desire and hatred. Um, connecting there i i think that that's a that's that's a really interesting par uh, parallel but again not just a parallel she is the paradigm like you know in as much as he is being corrupted Gollum is becoming like ungoliant in a way i mean she is i think sort of you know the pattern of all evil creatures um sort of the purest illustration the purest example that we get but um good good uh, brandon what did you want to say i think you already answered it for me. Um, I was going to bring out Ungoliant um, as kind of the pattern of evil things throughout the whole Cimmerillion, even the Lord of the Rings. But um, I also also wanted to talk about the image of spiders in Tolkien's literature. Um, you see, you know, um, in kind of the lineage of Ungoliant to Shelob, which I'm not really exactly clear on. I don't know if you could explain that. And um, maybe just this image of this, um, this all-consuming um, mother goddess image spider that is all consuming and um destroys herself in her famine um did he have and i hate to bring a biography as well but did he have um a fear of spiders i'm just i i heard that in passing and i've never seen it cited in a book but um it might relate somehow here i don't know yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah, as Nick has just brought up in text, there is this story that he was bitten by a tarantula, yes, while he was still living in, in South Africa as a young child. Um, but he also says later in life that he, he's, he's not, um, like, he didn't seem to be an actual arachnophobe, like, you know, have a genuine phobia of spiders. Um, he seemed to be sort of kind of interested in spiders. But there's no question that, you know, we see a very clear trend um, from Ungoliant through uh, the spiders of Mirkwood in The Hobbit and then on to Shelob. And there I'm citing them not in the direction in which they come genealogically, but in the uh, order in which they appear in his books. Ungoliant is first, uh, The Hobbit spiders are second, and Shelob is last, um, as far as his conception of them are concerned. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's... I mean, of course, it is so recurrent that one is tempted to go biographical here. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, if, 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 if one were a psychoanalyst, I think one could do some things there if one were to be so inclined. Um, 
But to me, I think one of the interesting things that I keep coming back to about them, especially thinking in the light of the observations we've been making over the last few weeks, is what I said a little while ago. That is that spiders are spiders are intrinsically artistic and subcreative little creatures. That is, they they make you know they make artistry um, in their webs, and all of the evil spiders that we see are all of them. Uh, you know, web spinning spiders, every single one. Um, the, so the spiders, you know, and I don't know to what extent this in itself is a, is a, is a you know, a, a deliberate thing on Tolkien's part. I don't know. But what we see is that, you know, the spiders who are evil are all evil in, in, in this sort of subcreative way. They, they have this, they generate this stuff, this, this, this artistic thing that is the, the, you know, spider webs always associated with artistry. Um, uh, in, in traditionally, so I think that um, you know, and we've been seeing it's the subcreative people who tend to go wrong. Like that is this great, you know, is the the the, the greatest gift, but it's also uh, you know sets you up for the biggest problem. So whether you're Aule or whether you're Melkor or whether you're Sauron or whether you're Feanor or whether you're the Noldor as a whole, um, this is the this is the uh, the uh, the way it goes. Though, um, uh, just to get back uh, quickly to answering, there's a simple answer to the question: the relationship with Shelob. Um, uh, it's very direct. Ungoliant to Shelob's mom. Um, Shelob is the is the is the daughter of Ungoliant. Um, she is called. Um, in the two towers, the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it, that, that's, that's very direct. And the, uh, the Mirkwood spiders are her, that is Shelob's, uh, offspring. We will meet others. Uh, well, not, we won't meet them. We will hear about them. We will hear dark rumors of their existence, um, in the rest of the Silmarillion. That is like some of Shelob's brothers and sisters who are not going to make it out of the first age, fortunately for everybody. Um, so there are going to be some giant monstrous spiders, the other children of Ungoliant, um, there in the, uh, um, in Beleriand. But, um, uh, but, uh, oh yes, yeah, so just that question, who, so who is Shelob's father? Um, uh, yeah, I think Nick is exactly right. Yes, we don't know, but Ungoliant ate him. Uh, no questions. <laughs> I think that that's, that that's, uh, uh, that's, that's certainly exactly right. Um, we will learn a little bit more about that, but it's not uh, it's not here in this chapter um, when we get to the final because um, we have not come yet to the end. That is to um, the final fate of Ungoliant and her final showdown with Melkor, which will be in the next chapter when she tries to take the Silmarils from him. So, um, uh, so yeah. Um, let's see, uh, Laura, go ahead. Hi, I wanted to talk about something a little different. I, I had a couple questions about the geography of Amman. I, I get a little confused. Um, first of all, the Undying Lands, is that all of Amman or is that just Valinor? Yeah, that's a good question. It's like, is it the Undying Continent or is it the Undying Region? Um, you know, I, I, first of all, this issue is one that we'll see debated later on. That is, remember, um, well, remember that passage that is not yet for hundreds of pages and we haven't talked about? Um, up in uh, in the Akalabeth, when we get to the Numenorians, we will see for them, they will call Valinor the Undying Land. And to them, that has come to mean the place where you go, which makes you live forever. But of course, as people point out, that's actually not the nature of Valinor. Rather, Valinor is the place where the undying folks happen to live. So um, that is... 
sort of, I think, one thing in general to remember when we're talking about the Undying Land. What seems pretty clear, the geography of Valinor, as we get it, is pretty simple. Pretty simple because we don't get all that much of it. Um, we know that there are three regions. Uh, there are three regions in the continent over there. Um, one is that, uh, one is, you know, sort of the main, the central part that is Valinor itself, um, the guarded realm, and it's got mountains all around it. Um, there is sort of wasteland to the north and to the south, and we're not told too much about it. Nobody lives there, um, it's their, 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 their wastelands. Avathar is the land to the south, and Araman is the land to the north, um, up towards the grinding ice. So, you know, that's kind of all we know. But it's, I mean, one thing that really struck me in thinking about this as, we, as I was rereading this pastime um, was I was sort of thinking about some of the conversations we've had um, over the last few chapters in looking at the choices that the Valar have made, um, first in retreating over to Valinor from the rest of Middle-earth, though not all of them have abandoned it completely, but yet by and large they've, they've moved over, and also um, their bringing of the elves over and their choice to invite them back and not to um, not to let the elves stay or you know the, all, all of the elves stay over in Middle Earth. Um, and one of the consequences of this is a kind of uh, of um, isolation, like self isolation. Um, on the part of the Valar, they have set up, the, and we can see it even in the continent. I mean, even the whole the whole continent uh, over there is not even blessed. I mean, you talk about the blessed realm. Well, clearly, Avatar and Araman are not blessed. Um, you know, like down where Ungoliant hangs out. I mean, these are these are abandoned wastes. So. I think that, you know, we can see um, the really sort of localized focus and how the Valar seem to have, at least in part, allowed themselves to become parochial here. Um, and that's, I think, relatively clearly not a good thing. Um, and we can see some of the bad consequences of it right away. Um, that is here, with Ungoliant going unnoticed and everything. Laura, go ahead. I, I've got a couple questions about geography, so maybe we can just clear these up, because I've been wondering about these for years. Uh, sure. So Elvenholm um, is Tol Arisea, yes. is that right? Yes. And that's not really part of what would be the Undying Land. Yeah, well, I mean, it's part of it when considered from the Middle-earth perspective. I mean, if you get to Tolarisea, then you're sort of, you know, you're in the... I was, the Undying Lands is kind of a vagueish category, and really a from-the-mortal-lands perspective category. Um, you don't get the sense that that's what people over there call it themselves all the time, you know. Um, so... Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I'll tell you why I'm asking about this, um... I mean, I'm going completely out of the Silmarillion and thinking about Frodo going over to um, to Elvenholm, I believe he goes to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was thinking, you know, there's a misconception that Frodo is going to heaven, basically. He's going somewhere yeah. and he's never going to die. But he's not really going to the Undying Lands proper. He's not going to Valinor. He's going to Elvenholm. Yes, he's going to he's going to Elvenholm, and uh, Brandon uh, has just asked in text. Yes, it is Tolerasea, which is identified with Avalon, um, and it's Numenor that's associated with with uh, uh, Atalanta uh, um, because it's it's the one that sinks. Um, so uh, anyway, that's um, that's definitely where we 
that's definitely what we can see happening there. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Um, but as, as far as the undying lands and Frodo, yes, absolutely. Um, he goes over there and he dies, you know, he dies relatively quickly. Um, and I think why he goes to Elvenholm and not all the way, um, to Valinor, I, I, I think he'd have died much quicker. I mean, there's only so much you can take. Um, already Elvenholm is too much. And, uh, the, um, uh, yeah, already Elvenholm is too much and, and, and Valinor itself way, way too much. Okay. And then I have one last question and it's about the two trees. So maybe we can segue into talking about the two trees. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Why aren't the, t- why aren't the two trees on Tanaquetel, which would be the tallest point in Amana? I mean, if, if they're behind the mountains, how can their light get over the mountains to, um, right. Because it can't. Their, their, their light comes to Middle Earth, doesn't it? Not much, no. Um, their light comes. That's why. Uh, that's why there's the Calakirian. That is that. There's there's that gap. There's that cleft, um, which is where Tyrion is, and then Alquilande out by the sea. Um, and in, in in one place it mentions they left this gap in the enclosing mountains so that the light could escape and get so that the elves could be like on the Middle Earth coast, um, you know, sort of over on that side, not way far inland. Um, and yet they could also still have the light of the trees spill out to them over there. Well, thank you, because that uh, clears up things I've been thinking about for years and been confused about. Yeah, no, uh, that is that is a a kind of a confusing thing. But I think, you know, that's another thing there, again, thinking as we've been looking at um, sort of how shaky was the decision by the Valar to bring the elves over in the first place. You know, even that doesn't, you know, doesn't that itself speak really eloquently uh, for this fact that they are, you know, still sort of drawn over to Middle Earth. You know, they, they... they're not comfortable being, even even though they're over in Valinor and they're all happy being over in Valinor now, um, yet they don't, none of them live inside the mountains in Valmar itself. They live, uh, the, the Teleri out on the, co- out on the shore in Alquilande, the, the, the Noldor in Tyrion, which is in sight of the shore, but also in sight of the, of, of the mountains and of the Calakirian. And the Vanyar eventually move in so far as the slopes of Tanaquetel itself. But none of them live past the mountains and inside where the other, where all the Valar live and everything. You know, they're all still sort of on the Middle Earth side. Like they, 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 you know, they're still kind of drawn over there and they can't be weaned from it completely. Um, even though, uh, uh, even though they, uh, yeah, yeah. Even though they're still there and they're still, they're still living there. Um, so yeah, I think that that's pretty, that's pretty conspicuous. Elizabeth, what are you thinking? Yeah, just kind of piggybacking on what Laura said, it made me think, um, why wouldn't they have positioned the trees in such a way that the light could have shined out to Middle Earth? Because you would think that they could have. And um, we know the lamps, when the lamps were shining, they that you would think that that would have encompassed everything. So that does seem like a really strange decision now that I think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty unusual. It's pretty unusual. Um, but yeah, no, that the lights from the, the light from the trees definitely does not extend all the way to Middle Earth. I'm still sort of thinking through the questions here too. It definitely doesn't extend all the way to Middle Earth. That's why things in Middle Earth are still kind of dormant. Um, uh, remember there was that one reference to Yavanna going through and, um, uh, and, uh, sort of putting things to sleep, uh, until, until a later time. And then finally, um, 
finally when the sun rises they're all going to sort of spring to life um but uh but yeah yeah that's um that's definitely uh that's definitely uh i think an important distinction uh to maintain okay okay so um i want to let's see i want to go to we should uh was we 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 almost talked about the trees we've actually talked about the trees really not very much for all this time we've spent talking about things the trees we've not talked about the trees all that much uh anyone anyone want to say a fond farewell to the trees we barely knew ye no one interested in the trees (laughs) dave what are you thinking about the trees wouldn't it have been a good idea maybe to uh have uh had some sort of um I don't know, security in place or some sort of backup. Yeah, well, because cause after the trees are destroyed, they everybody points out like, boy, that Feanor, he, he sure had a lot of foresight uh, locking that light up in those Silmarils. <laughs> right. You think maybe Turns out that was a good idea. They should have come up with that. <laughs> um, uh, although, I, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe there, to some degree, maybe they sort of realized that this was going to happen and they didn't go out of their way to try and protect them or back them up since um, I, I don't know it just seems kind of odd there are <laughs> sometimes the the Valar seem clueless and maybe that's because they actually aren't clueless and they know what's going on and they don't tell us what's going on so we think that they're we perceive them as sort of being clueless or 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 or, or careless but um, <laughs> seems like maybe they could have come up with some kind of backup plan plan uh for the the trees yeah you know uh, <laughs> that's right i love the idea of you know thinking of backup you know in the modern technological <laughs> sense you know if only they'd backed up the trees you know then they'd, they'd oh, be God. able to restore them would kill us. <laughs> yeah i know exactly exactly um yeah, well, you know, again, the one thing I remember here is Nienna weeping uh, as the trees were springing to life, you know, and you, you sort of have to think if anyone, if anyone is, and if any of the Valar are anticipating the destruction of the trees, it's Nienna, but I don't know that Nienna is going to also going to be the one who's going to be sort of thinking in that way. And at the same time, I also am not even sure that this idea of protection or preservation is quite exactly kosher. Um, first of all, even the Feanor illustration is itself seems to, um, potentially to be usable as a counter argument. That is, of course, the Valor saying like, oh yes, wise was Feanor to do this. That's great. But of course, there's also irony in that. Feanor didn't do that. I mean, he didn't, he was not wise, uh, to, to do, because he wasn't preserving the light of the trees exactly, or at least the preservation of it was a selfish thing. Um, you know, it, it, in a sense, you could say that his encasing of the light of the trees in imperishable crystal is, uh, or whatever it is, the substance of the Silmarils, um, is almost like what Melkor wanted to do. That is, that he wanted to have the light all to himself, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it, that's... Feanor takes the light of the trees and preserves it, yes, but also makes it possible to, you know, lock it up uh, in his safe and keep it all to himself and deny other people the sight of it. Um, You know, he makes it, he makes it, uh, he appropriates it by putting it in the Silmarils and claims it for himself. So, um, right. so you know, Which that's, that's, all the that's more reason not such a great that, thing. Well, all the more reason that maybe they should have done it, because 
you know, I mean, at least maybe they should have looked at what he did and said, um, well, that's pretty cool. And um, secondarily, it could also be tremendously useful. And, um, uh, and you know, we probably can't count on him to be uh, the uh, bigger man when it comes to it and give give the light back to us if we ever needed it. But I, I, I do think you have a point that, that you know, that, that that's just sort of not... I don't know. That kind of behavior is not would not sort of be in the line with the with with the um with um sort of Tolkien with Tolkien sort of picture of virtue and and humility and acceptance of things that you know things that happen to you even bad things like I don't know the idea that the to, to, it'd be kind of it's it's hard to imagine the Valar making this sort of singular creation the trees and then scrambling around to try and make sure that if they get something bad happens to them we can bring them back again um, right. It does that just doesn't seem to fit but you know when you're thinking about it pragmatically it seems kind of strange yeah no I, exactly I, I, but i think i think that that's right i mean w- one similarity that strikes me is the similarity to the three elven rings of power right the primary thing that they were designed to do was to preserve things unstained um their job their power was to protect things and to preserve them um and to preserve the memory of them and that is a good thing it's okay um but you know at the end of the day it's not clear that the elven rings are very successful or necessarily even a 100 percent good idea i think um you know in the end what do you have like if when you're doing that when you're focused on preserving and protecting you're fighting the long defeat right that's what galadriel's been that's what how she describes it and that's what we see in lothlorien um that you know there lothlorien more than anywhere else more even than rivendell is the place where we see the power of the elven rings at work um you know there we see you know like the 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 conversations that they have about time operating differently and there we were in a different realm and all this stuff and i mean you know that elvendom is has is being preserved there you know we have this kind of almost like a you know this 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 magical bubble and they've they've you know it's being preserved but you know it's 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 still fading uh, and it's still passing away and Gladriel recognizes you know at some point it's going to be time to let go and it's going to be time to go back you know to Elvenholm um and and let Lothlorien fade because what we're do- you know when you're trying to preserve things unstained you are fighting the long defeat at least in Middle Earth um you know where everything is is declining and falling over time. Um, so yeah, I think that if you, if you were to devote yourself entirely to that, if that's what you were always to be thinking about, like, do we, do we make sure we have all of our systems backed up? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that's in the end healthy entirely. Um, Jack, what are you thinking? Oh, it's just, uh, I wanted to mention about the reason for the festival and, uh, and the whole reason for the festival, um, was to heal the rift that was created by Feanor. And I just found it interesting that um, his actions actually led to that, and which led to the opening for Melkor and Ongoliant to come in and, and destroy the two trees. And it's just, a, I guess, an example of, you know, just bad decisions leading to more evil and, and just snowballing. Plus, I don't like Feanor. <laughs> That's, that's that's kind of understandable um and yeah i mean the the sort of the testimony to to uh feanor's corruption well i'm getting a week ahead of myself here um 
looking at the way in which he is corrupted by Melkor, even while he's opposing him. And he thinks he's setting up for himself and doing his own thing, but really he's just like being mini Melkor. Um, but, but as I said, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting ahead of things. Um, we can look at that next week, but yeah, yeah, no, I do. I do. I do agree there. Um, uh, let's see. Mike, you wanted to pitch into this? So we say farewell to the trees. Uh, what I took away from that paragraph was one of the themes in Tolkien is uh, creation is very, very hard and destruction is very, very easy. Yeah, and that is certainly a tragedy that we see again and again. Um, when when great and wonderful and beautiful things fall, which they're going to do with some regularity through the rest of the Silmarillion, um, Yes, that will be something that we'll see, you know, these great and glorious kingdoms that take years and years and years to build and then live in glory for centuries and then are burned to the ground in a day. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, that's, and you know, another thing um, that I was, that that really struck me um, as Jordan was reading the passage describing the death of the trees before, is I, want, I would want to emphasize death, uh, that is the emphasis of of the fact that the trees were living creatures, you know, they're not just things. They're not like the lamps. Um, they're living things. Um, you know, if you look at the language that he uses there, um, you know, that he, that he wounded them deep and their sap poured forth as it were their blood and spilled upon the ground, um, making it then even sort of more horrible, that image of ungoing it, sucking it up. And to, and to push that a little bit, I think, yeah, giving birth and nurturing life is hard and murder is easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, yes, withered them, root, branch, and leaf. Went into their tissues and withered them, root, branch, and leaf. Um, yeah, these are these are these are living these are living creatures. Um, uh, beautiful living creatures um, who are now who are now dying. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's a really um, that's a really crucial thing to remember. Um, yeah, Brandon, did you want to uh, to add to this as well? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe you could help me out, Russell. Uh, I was just thinking more of like the at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and I think I was listening to your lectures on uh, on it. The lasting image of the tree is of a of kind of just a tree, and how the two trees of Valinor are um, the tree, two trees of um, Gondolin are kind of kind of descended from the two trees of Valinor through a seed of Aragorn's father. Yeah, I, I kind of lost you there a little bit, but I think that you're referring both to the two trees of Gondolin um, and also to the tree of Gondor. Um, and we'll see this, the the big difference between the two of them. We will see there are two trees in Gondolin. Those are uh, those are not alive. Those are uh, those are remembrances of the trees uh, that uh, that Turgon makes, uh, and we'll see. Um, We'll look more at that later on. But in Gondor, that, of course, is a seedling which comes eventually down from Telperion, um, you know, through several uh, through several places. Um, and it, the link there is interesting. Um, of course, Gandalf's emphasis on the significance of that tree, you know, its line is older far than yours, Alessar, and all that. Um, you know, that there we have a clear connection to the elder uh a, a clear connection to the elder uh, uh, days, um, you know, now there in the third age and moving into the fourth age, 
Um, one of the the things that really seems to be happening at that moment in the return of the king um, is, you know, they're talking about the transition and, uh, you know, oh, the elder days are passing, you know, and Gandalf's like, hey, I'm not going to be around forever. And everyone's, you know, sort of looking forward to leaving. The dominion of men has come, um, you know, and Elessar's job, Aragorn's job is to sort of oversee the transition and everything. Um, but there's still a link. There's still a connection. The older days have not completely passed away. Um, and of course, Aragorn identifies the sapling of the tree with the promise of his own line. You know, that, uh, you know, he says, you know, I too shall die for I am but a mortal man. How do I know that my line will continue? And, uh, that's when Gandalf says, Hey, look, the tree. And, uh, you know, and that's, and that's what, that's what Aragorn connects it with. And as soon as he comes down and he points the tree and he's like, okay, everybody look out, you know, Arwen is going to be coming. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be able to get married. Um, you know, so that is, that's the moment where he, he is able to look forward to the future too. And, and to recognize he is going to have children and they're going to carry on the line. Um, but, but again, it's not only that looking forward, it's also looking back and it's establishing that, that, that older connection, um, to the elder days and not just sort of through the elder days, because of course the tree, the white tree of Gondor establishes a lineal connection back through almost every phase of the mythological story that is from from Gondor, back through Numenor, through Tol Arisea, through Tyrion upon Tuna, and then to the trees of Valinor themselves. Um, so sort of every, every, every phase of the story is represented uh, in the history of the trees. Um, and, you know, that I think is, uh, um, that I think is, is, is a really interesting moment, keeping the memory alive, but also, but also sort of looking, looking forward. Um, yeah, you know, Brandon, as you've just added in text, it's it's the right preservation. Yeah, you can't just freeze time. You can't just make it stop and say, we're not going to move any further. But you can remember, and you can look back, and you can have the past inform the future, um, you know, in positive and constructive ways. Um, so I think that that's... Uh, um, yeah, I, I think that that's, that that's a big deal. And, and as you say, Brandon, it is a fine line. Um, and a lot of people miss it on one side or the other, either forgetting about the past or dwelling in the past. Um, but clearly both of them are to be avoided. Dave, what do you think? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> we'll, we'll tr we'll, it's okay, Jason. We'll try to, we'll try to soldier on. Um <laughs> Okay, Dave, we'll pick it up when uh we'll pick it up when you type it. Um Oh yeah, yeah, good point about uh Sauron's desire to destroy Nimloth and, and to break that connection. Yeah. Um you know, we will see the 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 most sort of horrible moment in the fall of Numenor is when they chop down the tree uh and burn it on the altar. Um that's uh that's 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 really horrible and in its way almost and not that it's worse than the destruction of the trees but there's a there's a sense in which that feels worse the the way in which that goes down um but yeah yeah no i agree he wants to he wants to break that line and to sever it um and thinks he can undo the whole system by getting the numenorians to rebel yeah yeah but now we're getting more than one week ahead of ourselves we're getting several months ahead of ourselves so we should, but 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 yeah i agree that that's i think a really important moment um jason go ahead in the chat, Dave had asked if there's any connection to trees from other literature, if with the two trees in Valinor. 
And I just wanted to follow up on that and ask you if you know of any attempts in the, the criticism on the Silmarillion, whether anybody tries to make links between uh, Tolkien's trees and something like the Garden of Eden or uh, other authors like uh, C.S. Lewis's trees in uh, The Magician's Nephew, where they go to get the fruit or any, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that... There's a lot that could be said. I've never found anything that I find really compelling. Um, I mean, you know, in some ways it's hard not to, um, it's hard not to think at all of the Garden of Eden trees, but honestly, the parallel doesn't seem to me really sharp. I mean, this is the reason that I think it's hard not to think of it. The reason I put it that way is that there are certainly lots of, I think we have plenty of reason to be thinking about Genesis during this whole passage. I mean, the uh, the echoes of the fall in Genesis three and of the 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 murder of Abel by Cain. Um, I mean, the echoes of those two moments of the, you know the Genesis three moment and the Genesis four moment are just like deafening during parts of these you know these few chapters from you know with the the Cain and Abel thing from the the Fanor and Fingolfin struggle uh, all the way up to the kinslaying uh, you know which we're coming up on pretty soon. Um, and that's just kind of, to me, inescapable, um, the way in which the, 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 the kinds of lies that Melkor tells to the Noldor to get them to rebel against the Valar, um, is a very, you know, all, a bunch of that sounds very Genesis three and the, um, and then Feanor's big speech that he's going to make next, you know, in in the next chapter, again, very very serpent-like uh, in some ways. So I, I I I can't escape that. But at the same time, you know, then here we are. There are two, you know, there are two uh, special trees in the Garden of Eden, but they're nothing. But at the end of the day, the trees are nothing like it. Um, are nothing like these two trees. So. Therefore, you know, I, I I really resist the that the direct parallel that is between the trees themselves, um, and I don't see, um, you know, even with Lewis, you know, there you've got another tree in a garden, um, and then also, of course, the tree that grows from the fruit that Diggory plants at the end of the magician's nephew. So not just the original tree in the garden from which he took the apple, but the tree which grows from it. Um, and those are, you know, both very interesting trees. Though actually there's a kind of irony, I guess, if you think about those two in combination. I'm thinking of the comments that several of you have made about the really lax security uh, in Valmar and how the trees were not protected. And of course, in C.S. Lewis's mythology, it's the magic tree that's planted, which does the protecting and which keeps evil things at bay and keeps them out of 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 Narnia uh, for a long time. Uh, so that I think is uh, um, that I think is is uh, is is kind of interesting. Is kind is kind of funny actually. Um, um, yeah, yeah, that's good. Hey, we're we're starting to wind down, and I know we're uh, we're starting to lose people here, so I don't want to go too much longer here. But uh, I do want to get to um, uh, someone, Matt, I think, wanted to talk about Fingolfin um, and Feanor, and we, we should definitely touch on that, I think, before we go. I was really, um, was really thinking a lot earlier today about Fingolfin and Feanor, and especially Fingolfin's response um, as I was reading that passage. So I, I would definitely want to make sure we hit that. Matt, did you want to talk about that? Um, no, I wanted to, to read a brief passage first. Um... And this is from page 75, um, 
with the scene with Fingolfin and uh, Fëanor. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, he met Fingolfin before the throne of Manway and was reconciled in word. And Fingolfin, Fingolfin sat at naught the unsheathing of the sword. For Fingolfin held forth his hand, saying, As I promised, I do now. I release thee, and remember no grievance. Then Feanor took his hand in silence, and Fingolfin said, Half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart, will I be. Thou shalt lead, and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. Um, and I'm not going to give any spoiler uh, spoilers right now, but I think this is something we end up seeing over and over again in, in Tolkien. Uh, you have a a very powerful, talented character that the others seem to just stand in line to want to be subservient to. And, um, and you know, it, it seems like talent wins over personality and demeanor a lot of times. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess one thing I would say here, though, is I would want to make a distinction between what Fingolfin does with Feanor here and what um, <laughs> make a distinction between what we're reading now and what we haven't read yet. Uh, that is, next week we will see uh, the uh, you know, the rest of the Noldor, almost all the rest of the Noldor, following along uh, behind Feanor and going along with him. But I think that there's a really important difference between this declaration by Fingolfin and what we will see everybody else doing next week. There, they go along with him and are swayed by him. This is not Fingolfin being overpowered by or convinced by um, uh, uh, Feanor. This is him... Notice Feanor saying nothing. This is him proactively speaking up. Um, you know, And what, what he does is to make a speech which is essentially, well, humble. What he's showing here, I think, is humility. Um, I I agree, but I think he just gave away too much too soon. (laughs) I think he could have made up without saying, you know, um, thou shalt lead and I will follow. Yeah, well, see, what he seems to be meaning there now, now, of course, we're given the ominous foreshadowing, but they did not know the meaning that their words would bear. So, you know, I mean, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we are led to understand that he's going to kind of regret that. But what he's saying is, you know, remember what Feanor accused him of was trying to usurp his place to usurp his place as, you know, heir of Finway, but also his place in his father's heart. Um, and so what Fingolfin is saying, you know, he's going beyond saying, um, I release thee and remember no grievance. Like, you know, he, he, he's, he has said it not the unsheathing of the sword. He has a right because Feanor wronged him. He has a right to like hold out for Feanor to apologize to him for what Feanor did because Feanor was in the wrong. Fingolfin didn't do anything wrong. Um, he was he was speaking against Feanor, but what he was saying against Feanor was true, and he wasn't saying it in private. He was saying it in, but he wasn't saying it in front of Feanor's face. But he wasn't saying it in private either. So I don't think Fingolfin has anything to apologize for. Yet he proactively. Um, declares to Feanor, I'm not going to do that thing which you were, which you thought I was doing, that thing which I was being, which which you accused me of doing. I'm going to submit to you. You're my elder brother. You will lead and I will follow. Um, you know, so he's not just saying it's going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold it against you. You're drawing the sword against me, but 
I'm going to show you, um, I'm going to make a pledge to show you that I will never do that thing that you thought that I was going to do. Yes, and I, I was particularly alluding to uh, to uh, uh, the story of Turin Turinbar later on, where uh, you know folks seem to just want to follow him, even though he sometimes uh, cannot be the nicest fellow. Yes, yes, nor the wisest. Um, yeah, no, and certainly there are there are going to be times, and I agree, Turin is is probably the prime example where we see someone who is uh, rather an overpowering personality who is able to sway people to his will, uh, not only against wisdom, but even against their own better judgment. Um, and uh, so that, I mean, I think that that's, that, that, that is definitely something that we see happening there. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah. But here I think, again, this is Fingolfin. Fingolfin is doing the right thing here. You know, he is showing humility. He is going to become ensnared in Feanor's evil. But this action on his part, I think, is 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 definitely a good thing. That is not only to... Um, he shows forgiveness, um, but then even goes further than forgiveness. Fanor, I just, Fanor is still silent, uh, you know, but Fingolfin's, uh, you know, then adds the second thing, full brother in heart will I be. Notice he's not speaking on behalf of Fanor there, nor is he even saying, so, uh, big brother, big half brother, um, let's be full brothers in heart, okay? You know what he's saying is like, okay, you know, you stay silent, you do what you want, but like, I'm promising you, I will be your full brother in heart. Um, you know, that's all he can speak for. And uh, Fanor, it's, it's a good thing he's not asking Fanor to reciprocate because he's not gonna. Um, but uh, but Fingolfin is gonna is gonna hold to that. Um, I mean, Fanor's response is so cold. I hear thee, so be it. Oh, man. But anyway, Fingolfin, he's a dude and he does the right thing here. I think he's, I think that's, and I think that's really neat. And again, you know, I'm I'm tempted to sort of go back. This is the second, I think, uh, the second illustration, interesting illustration of humility that we've gotten. Um, Aule was the first. Uh, remember, because of his humility, uh, uh, Iluvatar had mercy on him and, and, and showed grace to him and blessed him. Um, but Fingolfin... Yeah, he does it too. Dave wants to disagree, or at least to quibble. Um, I, I don't. I just wanted to say that, uh, like, I, on the one hand, I agree that Fingolfin is being the good guy here, but I think maybe he's being a tiny bit foolish. He sort of gives a. He, he maybe should have added a, like a, a some sort of um, limiting clause or fine print <laughs> to the whole "you lead, I'll follow" thing, and and you know, like "you lead and I'll follow" as long as we're not going to run off and kill a bunch of Teleri and steal some boats and go off and just uh, do completely insane things. You know what I mean? It does. Like it does turn out uh, that know, would have been a I, handy I clause. I understand wanting to reconcile with your brother, but how about some some recognition of the fact that your brother is also kind of an, a jerk and an idiot? Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it's. I guess at the end of the day, it's not like he's doing the wrong thing or being a bad person. But it. I, and 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 when we look at the greater story and all that, maybe we don't want to necessarily say, "Oh, he screwed up or he made a mistake." But it's certainly, it's not without bad consequences. That's for sure. Um, he he, because because he's not just committing himself; he's committing all the Noldor that follow him, and uh, uh, they end up suffering horribly for the promise that he makes there. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think. Well, one thing that we'll want to come back to, I think. Um, well, 
we'll want to come back to this. Watch what Fingolfin does as we go along. Like we will see him come to sort of several decision points. Um, and, you know, and I don't think that... Fingolfin's words here... Okay, since we've been talking about what's going to happen next week so frequently, we'll do it again. Um, next week is when Feanor is going to take his great oath, and his seven sons are going to take his great oath, the Oath of Feanor. We will see many times in the rest of the book when the Oath of Feanor drives people to do things. Like, you know, when Feanor's sons just, like, have no choice because, hey, like, the Oath drives them, they've got to do this. Um, but I don't think Fingolfin's words here have the same kind of effect on him. I don't think that we can see Fingolfin, you know, in the actions, in the choices that he makes over the next several chapters. I don't think we see Fingolfin... Um, Essentially being like, oh man, boy, do I regret that now, but oh, I've got no choice. I have to do this because I promised that I would, and now I'm stuck. Um, we will see people stuck by Feanor's oath. I don't think Fingolfin is stuck, and I think that we can see some different things going on in his decisions later on, which are not just like, boy, boy, do I wish I had left myself an escape clause uh, in that, that oath I swore to Feanor before. Um, I think that he makes those decisions separately, um, and I don't think he's just sort of bound by this. Um, but as I say, let's um, let's uh, let's just kind of keep our eye on that as we move forward. Uh, Mike, go ahead. I not have this right, but is there a neat symmetry to the first scene where Feanor comes at Fingolfin with the point of his sword and is and is attacking him verbally, and Fingolfin is silent, and now in this scene. Fingolfin approaches Feanor with his hand stretched out and speaks to him, and now Feanor is silent. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yes, yes. Um, yes, we do see that exactly. I love that. Um, that's, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's Feanor versus Fingolfin in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very different silences, which mean very different things in very different circumstances. Um, yeah, that is very cool. That is very cool. And I think that's a perfect way, uh, to think about the two of them. Okay, well, I think I should probably let everybody go. Um, and I think we've touched on, at least on most of the, uh, on most of the major topics that we wanted to talk about here. So, uh, and I think we've still saved, there's still one or two points of next week's chapter that we have not talked about yet. So we've left ourselves one or two, uh, one or two things to, uh, to, uh, to, to work out still next week. So that'll be good. Um, but, uh, so good. So I think uh, we will say good night and, uh, look forward to, uh, more fan or discussion next week. All right. Next week, I'll be posting episode 10, our discussion of the flight of the Noldor. Now, perhaps you're skeptical that I will actually post an episode predictably next week, despite my obvious good intentions. If you are feeling such skepticism, I can hardly blame you. However, I'd like to reassure you with the knowledge that some of the participants of the seminar are stepping up to assist me with production. In particular, Laura Burkholtz, who has been editing these episodes for some time now, is going to be stepping into the role of producer here for a while, and she'll help me keep the trains running on time. You may also hear the voices of some of the other members of the seminar introducing episodes as we move forward, too. More people wanted to get involved, and I think more help is no bad thing. So brace yourselves, everyone, for a regular and dependable podcast output from this feed. 
I know it may come as a bit of a shock. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.